Yo, family, what's going on? What's going down? What's shaking? Welcome to Jonathan Souls Podcast. This is Jonathan Souls speak with you now. Here on Jonathan Souls Sundays, every Sunday, every Sunday, I talk to an artist, a writer, a filmmaker, an expat, an entrepreneur, somebody who's creating the kind of world that they want to live in. So if you have any interest in these fields, any curiosity, any desire to create your own path, this is the show that you need to tune into. At the end of the interview, you'll hear their contact information where you can reach out to them, purchase services, uh, get their books, their novels, their art, whatever it is. And of course, go to JonathanSoul.com and pick up my novel, Malcolm Mars, the sci-fi novel I wrote, and you can support this broadcast. All right, family, without further ado, let's get into the program. Jonathan Soul Sundays. And family, we're going to do something a little bit different right now. We're going to give you our history lesson. And uh, this is for the creators. This is for the comic book artists, the comic book publishers, the writers. Um, we're in the middle of a terrific African-American, African dysphoria, because I'm talking to folks from Canada, different other places, whatever, that are creating content and it's being bought, it's being sold. Books are moving off the shelf. But I want y'all to realize that this has been done before. In the 90s, African-American artists, writers came together and they did tremendous amounts of business. They created all types of trends, all types of uh, interest in the characters. And so I want y'all to kind of hear what happened before. I want y'all to hear about the million copies sold. I want y'all to hear about the, was it the USA Today articles and the, and the Arsenio Hall mentions. I want y'all to hear uh, how thousands of copies got sold, the lessons learned, and the pitfalls that this next generation of content creators can benefit from. So first, I want to introduce uh, Daoud Anyebwile. Uh, he is the uh, uh, artist and one of the co-creators of Brother Man Comics. And uh, everybody is familiar, I think, if, if anybody is uh, familiar with African-American content, especially in comics, you know about Brother Man. And I also want to introduce Roosevelt Pitt. He was part of the uh, Aenea uh, comic movement uh, in the 90s. Uh, and Roosevelt Pitt, not only was he one of those founding members, but he was also the creator of the iconic uh, comic book character, Purge. So, gentlemen, welcome to the program. Hey, it's great to be here, Jonathan. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Jonathan. Always a pleasure. No problem, no problem. It's my pleasure. This is like the second time for both of y'all coming back. So uh, let's talk about the apex because I want to kind of let the, uh, you know, on, on my desk, right? On my desk, I have uh, Black Sun, The Longest Night. I have uh, uh, The Sword is My Lady, The Lady is My Sword, Laws of Men, Part 1 and 2. I have uh, Epic, uh, Earth's Protector in Crisis, right? I have Power Knights, uh, one and two uh, from uh, Kid Comics. I have, you get the idea. Right. And so these guys and gals, in some cases, are creating gorgeous content, writing terrific stories. But I don't believe none of them have hit the apex that y'all did in the 90s. Uh, Roosevelt, could you talk a little bit about uh, Ania, uh, that comic book called Conglomerate? and purge and what the what was the apex like at the top of your game what was your experience um well ania was the association of 
black comic book publishers. And Ania, the word is, is Swahili for protect and defend. Mm -hmm. And that was our platform. We wanted to protect and defend the representation of black people in comic books. That was our focus. Uh, that was our mission. That's basically why we came together. And also to be able to come together as creators that were not hindered by um, corporate control, such as Marvel and DC or, or white corporate heads. We were able to come together and tell our own story the way we wanted to tell it and give characters the proper representation that we knew they should have and was lacking in the industry uh, back in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. um, and it was um, a group of, uh, I think, five of us back then. We had a little bit more that kind of dropped off, but the main uh, members were myself, uh, Roger, Burns, Roger Barnes, who created Heru, um, uh, Nabil, who created Suzuana, and uh, there was Eric Griffith, who had Ebony Warrior, and Alonzo Washington, uh, with a lot of, uh, if anyone's into black comics back then, knew Alonzo Washington of Omega Man. Uh, he was a highly uh, visible activist back then, mm -hmm. and uh, he had a real big following uh, during the early 90s into the um, uh, early 2000s. Okay. Um, so together we, we created Aenea for that purpose. Um, when we actually debuted um, back in 93, um, in Diamond, we were the 16th top publisher at that time. Now explain to people who or what Diamond is. Okay, Diamond is the, at that point it was Diamond and uh, I forget the other one. Maybe Cap Capital. Thank you. Thank you. Capital used to be around, but they, they, they're not here anymore. Uh, it was Capital and Diamond at that time, which was the major or two white distributors, co white corporate distributors. And in order to have your book distributed in the comic book shop, you had to go through one of those or both. And um, Diamond basically looked at your sales for that month and basically determined where you, uh, where you rate it as far as amount of books, how much money you made during that month, and then they basically uh, categorize you from 1 to 10, the top 10, the top 20, and so forth. And that year, we were the top 16th publisher, which was impressive, which, which was impressive considering we didn't have any huge corporate media backing. Wow. Uh, the, so the, the, the 16th publisher in the country? In, in the world. Wow. At that time, yeah. Okay. Okay. What kind of sales numbers were you doing? Like, how many issues were you moving? Well, we were. We had uh, four issues at that point, and out the gate, our first issues we all sold um, on average about a million a piece. Wow! Which was quite unheard of coming from again a independent black public publishers that pretty much no one heard of. However, you know, we did take advantage of uh, PR firms back then. We didn't have social media. We didn't have Facebook to get the word out. Uh, most companies relied on PR firms to book them on national television shows, um, to be featured in national papers. And I know Dawood can speak on that as well. So we utilized that uh, in order to gain a lot of national attention in Entertainment Tonight, USA Today, and others. Impressive. So out the gate, y'all were moving like millions of copies and you said that you got uh some some exposure and major uh white news outlets you said uh what were some of the magazines or some of the uh tv shows um the tv shows that we were featured in um entertainment tonight mm -hmm. uh, which was more of a news show back then rather than 
um, entertainment and gossip. Right. Uh, then we had E News. Uh, we also was featured magazine wise um, in USA Today alongside Milestone at that particular time, <laughs> and also Newsweek uh, wow. as well. So those were the top two uh, major news magazines and media that we were featured in. Impressive, impressive. Now, uh, if you were to do a have a conversation in the street with any Generation Xer. And I think if you mention Black Comics and Brother Man, people would immediately have like a light in their eyes. Daoud, can you talk about the uh, the apex, uh, the top of your game, the summit of uh, your Brother Man uh, experience back in the 90s? Uh, well, yeah, at, at the time when um, we were publishing as Big City Comics Incorporated, it was family owned and operated. It was uh, actually owned by me and my brother, Jason. And my brother Guy basically freelanced his work to us, but he he um, he held his full time job at at, uh, at the university. He he's been working at the universities and and going to school during those times. Um, but we still worked together as a family. Uh, my parents were involved, and it was, it was one of those things where it it it, it kind of organically evolved. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like the family. Uh, got together and said, let's make a comic book. It, it kind of was um, something where, you know, I was illust- I was already illustrating in the 80s and doing uh, custom airbrushing and all that stuff. And then my brother came on board and then we said, hey, let's make this happen. We called on my other brother. So, you know, you're kind of like stacking uh, uh, stones mm-hmm. onto this foundation. And, um, and we're utilizing who's, you know, who's available to us. Right. And 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 as a family, we've always worked together anyway, so that kind of was like a no-brainer. Wow. So, um, and much like Roosevelt said, you know, we didn't have finan- we didn't have corporate backing. Uh, the the financial investment was really us investing into ourselves, mm-hmm. and um, and just being on your daily grind. You know, be hustling, getting out there. Um, you know, nowadays, a lot of things is computer driven and I'm sure Roosevelt can, can uh, affirm to back in those days, you, you just had to get out. Right. You know, everything didn't really have happen from being in the house. Mm-hmm. You had to get out of the house and be among the public. Right. And, and then when you're in the public, that's when you pick up stores, you know, you'll, you'll have independent stores that'll want to distribute your books. Mm-hmm. You'll have, um, uh, you run into people who, you know, part of the media and the press, you know, you could be doing a, a street fair somewhere and then somebody says, Hey, you know, I, I work with the Dallas morning news, you know, it could just be a brother walking by. Hey, I, I write for the Dallas morning news, you know, or, or some news outlet or something like that. And next, thing you know, you're on some news outlet mm-hmm. because you're out in the mix in the public. Right. You know, so that was kind of like, that was like the original social media was just being social mm-hmm. out there and running into folks. Now, uh, one thing that was real curious about the 90s were the Black Expos. Did that play a part in Brother Man's exposure and development? That that was the reason for Brother Man existing in terms of uh, the the Black Expo 89. Well, Black Expo USA started in 89 um, out of New York. Mm -hmm. And I I had a, a custom airbrush shop in Jersey, East Orange, across the river. And... We had went there in 89 and said, hey, we just need to be here in 90 with a product. 
And um, and so that's where Brother Man evolved. And then we were just hitting a lot of the black expos. But from the expos, you connected with, you, you know, you would connect with other black businesses, uh, other outlets, you know. So basically for us, Diamond and Capital, they were secondary to us. Like mm-hmm. we didn't, you know, if they, if they distributed us or didn't distribute us, it was like we didn't – I wouldn't say we didn't care. It was almost like um, sometimes you feel like, well, sometimes you know how the industry might do you anyway. So, hey, if they're going to do us, you know, if they're not really going to push us, whatever, um, we're going to we're going to utilize the sources that do appreciate us. Basically, go where people appreciate you. Mm-hmm. And then if the other audience appreciates you, that's a plus. And that was secondary. So we, we did move a lot through uh, Diamond. But most of our numbers were through um, just dealing with, because like we had over uh, 500 outlets, individual outlets around the country wow. at one time that we dealt with direct. So basically, we were building our own distribution network um, outside of Diamond, because the numbers we dealt with with Diamond were not really high, because mm-hmm. we didn't really push too hard with them. Right. We were we pretty much were on the grind selling our stuff straight on the street. Okay. So our numbers were at seven hundred fifty thousand, and the, it it didn't fall off. Our sales ceased, and I, I'm sure you wanted to get into that aspect because mm-hmm. it was all it was internal. It was internal problems in terms of like death in the family. So mm-hmm. everything just stopped, but it wow. stopped as people were still buying. So there's a lot that we lost during that period of time mm-hmm. um, that affected the company. During that period, what kind of uh, major, what kind of white media or black media exposure did Brother Man get during his peak? Oh, man. Um, well, I, I'd say some of the, the, the largest, uh, well, the, some of the greatest exposure, I would say, was Arsenio Hall, uh, mm-hmm. America's Most Wanted, John Walsh. They even saluted Brother Man. We had like a five-minute segment. Wow. On America's Most Wanted? Oh, Yeah. Yeah, I still have that clip. I didn't upload it because it's still on VHS. I got to import a lot of tapes. Um, Teen Summit with, uh, um, uh, you know, the, the host and the the, uh, the, the uh, folks on Teen Summit, mm-hmm. BET News, uh, Screen Scene on BET. Wow. Um, oh, wow. Um, oh, just about ma- every major U.S. paper, like, I won't say every city, but a lot of the major cities like Chicago Tribune, Dallas mm-hmm. Morning News, L.A. Times, uh, Philadelphia Daily News, the Philadelphia Tribune, the Philadelphia Sun, mm-hmm. uh, um, the L.A. Wave. Um, I mean, we, we have so much stuff that we we um, basically it's archived at um, Auburn Avenue Research Library now here in Atlanta. Oh, I basically gave them all of my articles and um and when i import the vhs i'm gonna take that back take that down there and archive that so then there's a a a location for Mm -hmm. all of our history that's beautiful you think it'll make it to the schomburg at some point or is that basically what the auburn library is doing well the thing is auburn has been really supportive since i've been here in atlanta Mm -hmm. you know and, and it's funny because there's places that you know i think Things come down to like, um, uh, you know, who you connect with. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, because um, we were talking about that recently about, about 
connecting Auburn Avenue's research libraries archive with some of the other uh, black institutions mm-hmm. as well as the schools. Yeah. So then uh, maybe have a digital archive that everybody can access. Mm-hmm. So even though th- there might be a physical place in, in Atlanta, you know, you could be in New York or wherever and you can archive those same that same information because a lot of the younger people now, like what we're t- what, what me and Roosevelt are talking about now, you know, we lived it. Right. So it, it, even though we know it was huge for some younger people, it may be mind boggling. Right. Like they, they may want to read more than, you know, what the, the same thing that we probably talked about over and over again, it's probably like mind blowing to them where they want to read everything. Mm-hmm. You know, so we got to make it accessible to them so so they can read about our history yeah. and they may find their they may find gems in something that for us was just like, hey, that was just kind of like what we just had to do. Mm-hmm. Roosevelt, did you have a chance to do something similar, like save news clippings, uh, uh, tapes of your, you, you know, Aeneas or Purge's mentions on television, anything of that nature? Well, actually, I did. Um, we, I actually had a large archive similar to um, Brother DeWood with our Entertainment Tonight news article, USA Today. And this happened to be, uh, I pulled something out for you, Brother DeWood, uh, from my old stash. I keep everything. <laughs> so I, I, I can't show it to you because I'm not on video, but I'll read it out to you. It was uh, Dr. Foster's The Black Agenda newsletter. Do you remember that? Um... What year was that? That was uh, 1995. I'm looking at it right now. I kept the, the paper copy in one of my files, so I wanted to pull it out for this uh, podcast interview. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, it's called The Black Agenda. It was free. Um, and let me just um, so share this, so bear with me. Um, one thing I wanted to express that um, Brother Wood sort of hit on, you know, just like he himself, you know, the diamond and capital was something we did once we had really gained a solid footing, but we didn't get that footing through white outlets. We got it through a publication like the Black Agenda and the numerous black distributors back in the day. Mm. Um, one in particular, I'll just share, um, that Brother DeRue may, may remember, um, there's Oakland Comics Destri- um, Distribution Company, OCD. I'm reading straight from the from the old newsletter, um, and then uh, Brother DeWood's um, address for Big City Comics is one of the uh, is on the listing. <laughs> okay, now I hope I'm not giving away any uh, 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 I guess um, sensitive information here, but it reads: Big City Comics Inc. Brother Man, Dictator of Discipline, J.C.E. Sims, President, P.O. Box twelve three four five, Philly. PA. That sound familiar? Oh yeah, yeah. That was our box. Oh, okay. So <laughs> oh, yeah. So I mean this is this is back in ninety-five. And um what what I'm what I'm guess I'm expressing is that one thing that made us who we are is that we had a clear unification of black people. Mm-hmm. Uh, where we didn't have to rely on on white corporate structures to build our fan base or or distribute our product. Uh, there were numerous black distributors that I dealt with, including Oakland. I dealt with distributors through um, the uh, the black Muslims as well. And they distributed uh, a lot of our product back then. You're talking about the Nation of Islam? Yes, sir. Wow. Oh, yeah. Yes, sir. Yep. You know, 
And that's something that is lacking now. We don't really have that structure uh, as we did back then. And I think that's one reason we are lacking in really focusing on our own black empowerment. But perhaps with another conversation for another interview, but we had that back then and it was quite strong. And we shared resources and we helped recycle that money in our own community, in our own businesses, strictly like with the black agenda. This, this was the Black Independent Comics Association newsletter, strictly made for black people, black comic products, and we did it ourselves. And that was quite powerful. And I hope we can resurrect that in the future. Yeah, we actually, um, you just reminded me when you said that, because um, in 92, I believe it was 92, we picked up distribution in Japan. Wow. So we were shipping our books to Japan in 92, and then we were written up in a magazine from Tokyo called uh, Any Magazine, A-N-Y Magazine. Um, and they, somebody, some anonymous person from Japan mailed us the article, and we didn't even know we were in the article in Tokyo. And, and, um, and so that's 92. We had only been out three years at this point. And um, and then in uh, and talk about the boomerang effect. The boomerang effect meaning years after you know Brother Man did a circulation when people you know when you start finding out who's been reading your stuff and how it's impacted people. In two thousand three, about two thousand two or two thousand three, uh, 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 someone from from Tokyo uh, who create a created a anime series called Tokyo Tribe. And it's it's at, it's really big in Japan. And he wrote me and said, you know, it was inspired by Brother Man. And he sent me like the toys and merchandise and all that stuff from Tokyo Tribe. And um, you know, they just wanted to just be in communication with us. We were trying to to talk to them about doing some things, whether it's like a language barrier. But it was just kind of interesting that you know how. Like, we may talk about the numbers, just like what Rosa was saying. You know, if you talk about a million books and we're moving this many units, there's a lot of people who are being inspired that we don't even know about. Mm-hmm. We don't even know. We, you know, we may never fully understand the impact of the things that we put out until maybe 5, 10, 15, 20 years later. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, another um, thing that I tell younger people now who, you know, they, when, they, when they're working on their product, and I think sometimes we – we want to see all the, the benefits of what we're doing right now, which I understand, but I also tell them to have patience. I said, the thing is, you have to think in terms of creating something that will have a lasting effect. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, um, and, you know, the rewards will come because sometimes the rewards are greater than just the book that you put out today. It's the impact that it makes on somebody 10, 15 years into the future. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that uh, Roosevelt uh, with uh, with Purge and uh, the other comics that you were associated with? Did you see that kind of uh, response from different quarters, maybe that you didn't expect? Um, I did. You know what, what was interesting for me uh, as a creator. Um, I don't know if many share this particular experience. When I created Purge, actually before Purge, it was a book called The Power Nights, which was my first book late 80s, mm-hmm. uh, a black and white book of black superheroes who um, garnered their powers because of their melanin. And um, and one thing that was concerning me when creating those characters in Purge, first thing I thought about, well, 
will people who are non-black buy this book? You know, and um, what I found out was that sometimes it was the exact opposite. <laughs> I would have black folks walk right by my table; it wouldn't even stop. And white people would crowd around me and buy up the books. It was it was it was my loss uh-huh. for me. Um, so I, I had I've had that experience. Um, you know, in the early goings of my career. And that was surprising to me. And I couldn't quite understand why that was the case. I mean, I know better now, but back then it was like, wow, you know, this is something that I wasn't expecting. Um, And it happened with all of the books, basically, all the creators. We had a similar experience no matter where we were from. And keep in mind, I was in North Carolina. Ebony Warriors creator Eric Griffin was in California. Nabil Hodge of Zulu fame Zawanda Zulu, he was in Atlanta. Um, brother Roger Barnes of Heru was in New York. Mm. <laughs> so we were all over the place, but still working as a, as a, as a uh, uh, concise unit uh, to get the word out. But we had similar experiences uh, with our books when we were marketing them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, not, not to say that we didn't have our strong black following. It was just in some cases it was interesting when uh, we got more or garnered more interest from non-blacks than we would uh, black people. So it was, it was an interesting time. That's that's funny. It, it reminds me of, uh, I was an art director years ago. And uh, as a matter of fact, when I was an art director, uh, uh, Daoud was kind enough to do some work uh, on the magazine that I managed. Uh, he did some illustrations there uh, back in the day. That's when you guys had your shop in, I guess, West Philly or whatever. Yeah. And um, so anyway, so I went, I was, I had a shoot in LA and I went there and I, it was right across the street. The little hotel was right across the street from the comedy store or something like that. And uh, long story short is I was there on black comedy night and there's always, you know, some white kids sitting back in the corner laughing their asses off. You know what I mean? There was this restaurant in Philly, Zanzibar blue, black owned everything. Always, <laughs> so, so white people, the hip white people will find you. You know what I mean? The hip white people will find you. So we talked about the apex. We talked a little bit about the cultural impact. And, and just like Daoud said, you know, we still may be getting the repercussions that it still may be, you know, coming up. Hopefully when folk hear this uh, podcast, maybe it'll stir up some of those memories and some of those, uh, those vibes. Now talk about, the decline because the reason why we're doing this podcast, this is for the millennials. This is for the folks that I just, you know, who are publishing summons and who are publishing Johansi and who are publishing the pack and who are publishing all of these other books that I'm buying. Now I want them to learn from you guys experiences. Cause it's not like you're out of the game. You guys are still moving forward, you know, with the benefit of your experience, but just sharing it with, with, with the audience. Now, um, uh, Roosevelt, talk a little bit about, um, the decline um, and, and how that happened. Did you see it coming? What precipitated it? Can you talk about that? Well, um, I'm going to use Brother DeRue's example about the family dynamic. You okay. know, his is, of course, blood relatives, but things got disrupted, deaths and so forth, and it caused things to unravel. And, you know, and eventually, you know, sometimes when that happens, uh, you're not able to function as a business. In the same way, Neo was my comic book family. Although we were relatives, there was a family dynamic there. So it's multi-layered uh, that caused a decline. One, uh, not having the adequate financing that we needed to continue. 
Not, you don't have the money to produce, you can't produce. Uh, two, choosing your workmates or business partners carefully is a must, something that I didn't think about at that time. I was young, I was excited. Uh, and understanding that everybody has their agenda. One of my mentors says that everyone is listening to the same radio station, pretty much. And I asked him, what is that? He said, WIFM, what's in it for me? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's fine. We all should be concerned about what we can get out of it. But one thing he taught me as a mentor, he said, you also need to be concerned about what you can give, what you can offer. You know what you want, but how can you facilitate them to reach their goals so you can reach um, a joint goal together. And that's something that we never had uh, in that particular group. We never had that conversation. So as things grew, we imploded. I mean, we had Newsweek, we had Entertainment Tonight. Well, during that time, I was doing the co convention circuit, San Diego, Philadelphia, the list goes on. And we were being approached by, at that time it was Tyco Toys, mm -hmm. Toys. We were approached by um, uh, card companies. We had a, uh, a short uh, trading card deal. But what ended up happening is that since we weren't all on the same page, we wasn't um, communicating transparent enough to understand what each other's wants were as far as their end goals. Whenever we tried to make deals, we couldn't because we couldn't connect with one of the two members or one or two members couldn't decide or couldn't agree. So that was I. What that's what I saw at the beginning of the end, where we weren't able to actually come together because we didn't have those conversations at the beginning to really understand exactly what we wanted to happen individually, but as a group. So that was one. That was the second layer. Um, the third layer was something that Dwayne McDuffie shared with me shortly before his passing that I I took um, to heart as gospel. Although at the time that he mentioned it to me, I didn't quite agree with him. I felt it was quite offensive, to be honest, but I saw his wisdom. And this is what he said to me. He said, Roosevelt, you're doing great work. However, you're going to have to treat this as a business and not a hobby. Hmm. And to me, that was quite profound. Although at the time, again, I didn't really care much for it. Like, Man, I'm in this for the business. I've been doing this. What do you think? I'm spending my money and my time. But I understand what he meant. You know, uh, having a team that you can trust, uh, a team that, you know, you know for sure will back you up, uh, and that you definitely have the same mission in mind. Because now I've seen that a lot of, I'm specifically talking about black artists and writers who are quite talented, they... What's what I'm thinking of? They, I guess the word sponge, or they, they, um, they get their backing and support from black people mm -hmm. to boost and elevate themselves just enough so that Marvel and DC would take notice of them and then they leave. Mm. And that's something that I say is a problem. Not seeing running for Marvel and DC is not a good thing, but not at the expense of the people who you're supposed to be creating the product for to elevate them as well as yourself. But you give the impression that you're doing it for the black movement or the black empowerment or black comics. But at the end of the day, as soon as Marvel DC gets noticed, you're gone. And that's something that I saw happen 
within the Anir group as well. Some of the members, once they got enough media attention, they went elsewhere, which again, goes back to what I said before, not really knowing your business associates well enough to make good decisions when you partner. And those things were one of the main reasons that uh, we declined and eventually went uh, defunct as a group and a company. Mm. Daoud, can you talk a little bit about the decline? What precipitated it? Um, describe the process. Yeah. Um, with, with us, you know, there was, there was definitely um, a rise. I mean, almost immediately when we came out uh, and, and, in our case, you know, we, we had movie deals from the first year we came out, uh, Saban entertainment, the power Rangers, wow. um, sent us a contract film contract. And, um, we, we were negotiating with Motown at one point, uh, Joel Schumacher who did Batman. We were negotiating with him, Columbia, Columbia television. Um, and so there was a lot, there were, there were, there were, deals on the table that, you know, we, you know, if we just wanted to do one of those numbers where it says, Hey, just sign it. You know, we could have just signed and just, Hey, okay, we got a, some type of deal, you know, for movies made or not made, you know, there was a potential for us to, to make that happen. But, um, our thing was, you know, big city comics was an extension of the philosophies that was within my family, which a lot of it came from my father which was own, own what you create, hmm. you know, regardless of what it is, what we do, you know, in order to build our nation, you know, we have to, we have to build what we create. We have to hold our families together. You know, that's what we grew up in. My father wrote books on the black family. Uh, you know, the first book I, I did a cover for was right to pass it for black youth that my dad wrote when I was 11. Wow. So that was kind of like always a part of my mentality. So to me, family always meant a lot to me. You know, that's why uh, I, I feel a lot when it comes down to dealing with family or having any type of strife in the family because I understand the value of it. I don't write family off. I don't write children off like, oh, whatever. You know, I'll see that kid whenever. It's like, to me, that that's gold, you know. So when my mother passed away, she passed away the, the night we were doing, uh, it was the first night of the Black Expo New York, 94. And that was the high point. 94, 93, 94. That was, that was when it was kicking, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and that was kind of like the apex period. And we knew we were going to be at the millions by that point. And, uh, so she died the first night of the show, which was a four day show. Wow. So, and that was kind of like unexpected, you know, she had an aneurysm. Mm -hmm. So, and I had just spoken to her that night. So everything just stopped. We had to go back to the, the expo. You know, we didn't even get a refund from the money we put out and everything. And all them years we go on the Black Expo, it's like, dang, man, we can't get a refund. You know, so it kind of left a bitter taste in our, in our, our mouth about that, too, because, you know, we supported the expo all them years, and this was a tragic event, and, and we lost a lot. So we didn't do Chicago. We didn't do any of those big shows where we would have moved all the inventory that we had easy that year. So then the following year, as we were trying to uh, relaunch, we opened up our world headquarters in Philly. And that was shortly after uh, me and you met because mm. um, uh, we were in – we had that uh, office in West Philly, but then we opened up Big City Commons World Headquarters in the Germantown, Mount Airy section. Yep. And that was opened up in memory of my mother – 
but then my father died. So when that happened, it was almost like everything just kind of disbanded. Because, you know, it's kind of like you're trying to hold together this thread and it's breaking. So, and I was much younger then, you know, think about it. It's like that's 90, 95, you know, I'm, I'm 52 now. So I think I, I think I just hit 30 then. So um, that was a, a period where uh, it it was all internal. It wasn't like brother man, you know, for people who say brother man, you know, maybe it fell off because of this or that. It didn't fall off because of sales. It didn't fall off because of the popularity. It was actually growing and we were turning things down. We were turning down movie deals mm. for that, for that same reason. Like, uh, you know, what the brother just said, Roosevelt, um, we always knew that the value of maintaining our ownership so we didn't care who was sending us a contract. We wanted to make sure, hey, we signed this contract. We still own what we have, and our people benefit from this deal, not just us. It has to be something that this creates an institution. And if it doesn't create an institution, we're not signing it because we're not going to be exploited. So we turned down things that would have been opportunities, but – you know, you have to, we, we, we always had to gauge, well, who is this opportunity for? Is it really going to be an opportunity for us or an opportunity for an organization to exploit us? Mm-hmm. So when, when you have your team, which is your family, and those are the people that uh, understand what Roosevelt's saying, that's why I pretty much only worked with my family because prior to that, I had relationships when I was in Philly uh, before doing big city comics where things went sour with some dudes, you know, that I partnered up with in, in different p- parts of the city. And I said, man, I got to work with people who I know. And at least that was my brothers and my parents. Mm-hmm. Hopefully I'll, I'll, I'll expand my team, but I was always very particular about who I worked with. Cause I didn't want to, I always felt like what I'm creating is bigger than me. Mm-hmm. So basically that's what led to the, to the, to the, uh, demise of big city comics as a company and then then you know years later and i went through a divorce and it was really an ugly drawn out divorce and that was kind of like the 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 aspect that really affected me but you know but then when i realized like a lot of people go through it because you know you beat yourself up when when you're when you deal in situations like this but then when you look around you see wow i know so many people who went through this and worse so you can't so in my, my adult mind now, I retrospect, retrospectively look back and say, hey, if I was to do it all over again, I would have just got all this extra insurance so that if anybody passed away, the company would keep going. But see, when you're young, you don't know that. You know, you're, you're emotionally invested. But with, like you said, with Dwayne McDuffie saying treat it as a business, if I understood those things back then, I would have had the insurance policies in place so then if anybody passed away, the legacy would continue because it's paid for. But see, those are things I learned later on. Hmm. We're going to get into the uh, lessons learned in a second. Um, but Dwayne McDuffie, you know, rest in peace, uh, keeps coming up. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about that. So the way I see it, I see on one side of the street, I see Roosevelt and I see Daoud and company and their building. On the other side of the street, I see Dwayne McDuffie and Milestone. Was there ever a time that, and for people who don't know who Milestone is, Roosevelt, could you talk a little bit about it? And you could you talk a little bit about maybe their 
trajectory during that period? Um, well, Milestone um, was a uh, black-owned company, a comic book company, uh, that was headed by uh, Derek Dingo, Dwayne McDuffie, Dennis Cowan, and um, Michael. Sorry. Oh, Thank you. Brain dead. It's late, guys. So sorry. I've been on the road for three hours <laughs> to get here. Uh, Michael Davis, uh, which is actually a close friend of mine. So hopefully when he hears this, I hope he don't <laughs> second guess that because I couldn't come up with his last name. But be that as it may, uh, those brothers started Milestone, and they were able to get a, basically a publishing deal with DC, mm-hmm. uh, in which they were able to access and have access to their uh, media platform. Um, meaning they they had national exposure through uh, DC. Uh, they work with DC's printers, and of course, you know they hired their own writers and artists, and uh, they were quite prominent uh, as far as that was concerned. And uh, and they did quite well. Um, and they're one of the most memorable uh, black comic book companies. Um, uh, that people think about now when it comes to black comics or the black comic movement. And a lot of that is because, you know, they had a DC marketing machine behind them. Um, so uh, when it comes to looking at both sides, as you said, of the street, you know, you got a need and you got milestone. Um, one of the things that I saw that was, a, was an issue being involved with the Milestone and Nia beef it was sort of like the, the West Coast, East Coast beef okay. with rap. Uh, it was kind of like that. And it was something that really the media took on and blew out of proportion. There was really not a, not a lot of fighting uh, between Ania and Milestone. And if I can kind of go back to what I said before about understanding who you're dealing with when you're dealing with business partners. Hmm. And in this particular case, if you had opportunity to listen to any of the Ania interviews that I did back in the 90s, uh, Jonathan, mm-hmm. uh, you would probably notice one of the major outspoken speakers in our interviews was Nabil Hodge. Right. And Nabil was very flamboyant, but he was very abrasive. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was an issue for me um, because his standpoint was you're either with us or you're against us type, <laughs> type position. Wow. And he came out a lot um, in his dialogue during that time, attacking Milestone. Now, I'm not saying everything he said didn't have merit or wasn't valid, but it was posi- it was positioned in a way that um, the white media took it and ran with it as if we were fighting against them while we basically had the same goals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, if you read any of the, some of the old articles, if you come across them, you would get that impression. But in reality, that that's not what was going on at all. Uh, just let you know, because some people are not aware of it, but Michael Davidson and I had actually come together um, during the apex of both companies, um, maybe a year or two before we both went defunct and went out of went out of business, to come together and actually produce a crossover, a near milestone crossover. <laughs> and my, it was my idea to come up with it. I brought it to him, and he was going to present it to uh, the other members, but. Unfortunately, they didn't really get out of the gate uh, because, again, they went out of business soon after. But the idea was to take to turn the table on the media and to give everyone the impression that perhaps we were fighting among each other, but to come out with this huge crossover event showing black unity between two black companies that most think are in fighting or fighting against each other. And that would have made a huge splash in the comic book world. 
mm-hmm. if that would have happened. Uh, but unfortunately, it didn't. So um, when I look at the relationship that could have been, uh, I think that we uh, would have done better if we would have focused on our similarities and what we agreed upon, mm-hmm. agree, agree with, rather than what we don't, uh, and then try to build from there. Uh, but at times, and I've learned this as I've gotten older, as an independent comic book publisher, specifically a black independent, my um, competition is not with DeWood, it's with Marvel in DC. Right. Because DeWood will share Purge on his page. Mm-hmm. Or, I would, or I would like or share um, uh, Brother Man, uh, his new product, without question. Well, you're not going to have Marvel in DC share Brother Man on their site. Mm-hmm. They're not going to do it. Okay, they're just not going to do it. Um, so when we understand that as black comic book publishers, that we are not our competition, then I think that we can come together more, cross um, uh, advertise, cross promote, and build a really strong foundation of support within our own group. And like Nuruud said, once you do that, you show strength and you'll get people coming to you at that point, offering you deals. And that's the strongest position you can have. Mm. Daoud, you have any uh, insight on the uh, the milestone uh, vibration? Any thoughts? Any experiences you'd like to share? Well, yeah, I think I think um, a lot of people know about uh, uh, my my stand on, and it wasn't, and yeah, I, and I put it like this: um, see, I didn't have a, a direct relationship with them. Like I didn't, I didn't know them. I didn't have anything personal against them. What I saw during that time, and I'm talking about the time that they came around, and from the time what we were doing to to us, it felt like, um, and see, I don't know their business dealing. So I, I, ne- I can never say what their specific goal was, but for us, the way it felt was like, you know, okay, DC had DC and Marvel, you know, they have all these years to, um, uh, produce black products or mm-hmm. black characters. And then it seems like when this, when this movement of black comics, is happening independently that's when that comes on the scene so that's how we saw it it had, it had nothing to do with them specific or personal like, well, i i didn't know him i didn't actually i when i met Dwayne mcduffie you know we actually had good conversation so it was never anything about them specifically and um and at one point when i i wrote uh uh my feelings about it my feelings were really based on feedback i had a lot of people who were who were asking me my thoughts and they were trying to understand a history and i was trying to explain to them like you can't compare the two because they were trying to it was almost like you're trying to compare us with dc comics Hmm. you know dc comics you know they move this uh, they move this many books and brother man moved this many books and i said yeah but we didn't have a, a a 70 year old 70 year plus machine behind us or however long they've been around. I said, you know, this was done with airbrush money. Wow. You see what I'm saying? And no, and no, no backing. And I don't know anybody in, I, you know, I'm, I'm coming straight from 
airbrushing on the streets in Philly and Jersey. I don't know any, I didn't even know how comic books were made. You know, I, I just knew Reggie Byers, a friend of mine from Philly who did, uh, who had victory comics, good friend of mine. And he told me basically, here's how you make comic books. And I didn't even know what type of paper you used. Wow. You see what I'm saying? So we're coming in, you know, and then me pulling my family is because I didn't know anybody else to grab. So, you know, our thing was really school of hard knocks. And so when people are comparing you to something that I see is affiliated with DC, I think people get it twisted that I that I have a thing against them. I said, no, I'm not like that. I'm not, I'm not unhappy for people's individual success. It's just when people compare it to me, it's like, you know, you're minding your business and somebody says, hey, your car is not like my Mercedes-Benz. I said, well, you know, I, I don't have Mercedes-Benz money. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So it's like you're defending yourself, but you're not angry at somebody else for having a Mercedes-Benz. I mean, you know, they're doing what they're doing. We're doing what, they, what we're doing. And, and then when you couple that with, and I think this happens with a lot of us as, as black people anyway, we're already... Um, like Dr. Claude Anderson says, you know, we're playing the Monopoly board coming on with, uh, we're already coming in last. Mm. And we're trying to compete with people who already got properties and they done moved around the board three or four times. You know what I'm saying? So that will create a certain level of anxiety mm-hmm. because you're trying to build something so you can build an institution and you're understanding the significance and the seriousness of what it is that you're trying to build that, yo, know, you can get angry. You know, I mean, I, I admit there was a period of time where I was angry. I felt like, why did I lose this? Why did I lose that? Why did, you know, why did I go through this? Why can I sustain something so then my children and their children can now have, like, the institution should be here now. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And then when you feel like it's under constant attack, you're, go- you're going to feel that way. You know, in retrospect now, it's like I have a different take on it because I, I don't want none of them brothers there to think I have anything personal against them because I'm always happy for anything anybody does. And I agree with Roosevelt. I don't like things being in the public where people pit us against each other because right. they see, they see that, Oh, they got a problem with this. And then they run with it where my problem is really not with them. It's I'm still talking about DC. I'm talking about DC and Marvel. I'm not talking about their individual success. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and, you know, so that's what I'm saying. I'm looking at it more from my my mature mind now, the way I felt about things back then. And also, when I'm talking about back then, I was living it at the time. So when you're living it at the time, you're on the grind. You're driving around the country. Uh, we're going through the Tennessee mountains, almost spinning out on ice and stuff like that. You know what I'm saying? With a With a van full of comic books. <laughs> I mean, I could tell so many stories about just driving cross country that was like some some of that stuff was scary. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's like, yo, we're doing this so we can build something for our kids, and we, you know, and we're um not financed, wow. and we were able to maintain, we were able to build all of this despite that. So it does it creates a certain feeling where you get anxiety, you can get angry at times, and then there's times you you go back and you say, you know what? I, I, I can sit back and I can enjoy it now. I can, I can really appreciate, I, I built something. I, I established a legacy, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? So to me, I, 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 I can say that I um, salute what they do because what they did worked for them. What we did worked for us. 
But Roosevelt and them did work for Nia because in the end, the winners are the children who get to read all of our material. Right. And that's what I've come to the conclusion in the end in my in my mature years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Speaking of maturity, we'll just uh, slide into that that next uh, segment. Lessons learned. Uh, Roosevelt, you um, you have a. A plethora, I'm sure, of uh, you know lessons that you could share, um, but just briefly share maybe like I don't know, random number three, just three, you know, lessons that you want. Uh, and before I even get into that, uh, for the for the folks who are listening, these brothers are still in the game. I got my, uh, I think it was a was it Brother Man Resurrection, is that Revelation? Revelations, Brother Man Revelations, mm -hmm. got that copy. Uh, large format book. I got my uh, my digital copy of Purge, and I can't wait till the paper come out. The backers got to get theirs first, and then uh, and then I'll start buying and stuff. So these brothers are still in the game with lessons learned, and so at this point we're going to share uh, some of the obstacles, you know, the ways around that that that, that they they can uh, you know use moving forward, and, and y'all can benefit. So Roosevelt, lessons learned. Well, one of the lessons I learned. Um, <clears throat> is one, patience, mm -hmm. um, because we have to grow through the process and we have to know ourselves through the process. Uh, and there's one thing about being independent. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're alone, but it does mean that you have to know who you are and be true to yourself and your goal and your mission. Mm -hmm. uh, is this a hobby? Is this a business? Is this something you're just doing to get attention? I mean, all those questions need to be asked. Um, before you even set your pen to paper or fingers to type, if you're right, if you're a writer, to clearly understand why you are in it and are you in it for the long haul? And because if you are, it's going to take one patience. Um, two, it's going to take perseverance. As Brother Drew said, one thing I do appreciate about back then, everything wasn't instantaneous. We have a lot of kids now who are really self-absorbed. And, and very entitled in their thinking where everything has to be uh, quick and on the now, you know? And back then you drove three or four hours to the convention because you couldn't <clears throat> afford to fly with your books in the trunk. <laughs> <laughs> that takes perseverance, especially if you got a car like I did with a hoopty with no air conditioning. <laughs> okay. Uh, so it takes perseverance. Um, the third thing I learned was that it took big D word, discipline. Mm. If you don't have discipline, you're not going to make it, period, in any business, specifically if it's comic book publishing, because you have to know the business as well as knowing how to produce a book. They go hand in hand, and you have to be willing to wear tons of hats in order to get the job done. And right now, even at the age I'm at, I'm still wearing a lot of those hats. Mm -hmm. uh, because sometimes you have to, in order to do what you want to be done, you have to be able to uh, function in different capacities in order to grow your brand. And now in this new age of social media, uh, I have to actually reinvent myself to a degree because I didn't know anything about Facebook a few years back or, or Instagram or Snapchat. The list goes on. But I had to learn how to communicate with the kids and the young adults of this time. And that took discipline. Hmm. 
Dude, uh, lessons learned. Well, number one, I say, hey, I, I, I agree with everything he just said. Mm-hmm. Um, because um, I do think that nowadays, especially with um, social media, it's almost like a race. You know, it's the race to, uh, you know, somebody puts out something, everybody sees it, you know, somebody else got to put something out. And, you know, and there's, a, there's a healthy um, competition in that as well. Uh, however, you know, when you think in long term and uh, creating legacy, sometimes it, sometimes you have to let things take time. You know, it, it takes its own time to the story has to be written on its own. You know, you you can't rush it because you see somebody posted up like, oh, man, this thing's already out and I'm only on page three. Right. You know, I say, well, maybe you're meant to be on page three. You know, it's their time to shine. Maybe your time to shine will be next year. Hmm. You know what I mean? And because everybody has their time to shine. And that's one thing that we have to we have to understand. Um, also, getting out and being a, a, among the public is uh, another thing. But one thing, if I say uh, lessons learned, mm-hmm. um, because I, I didn't finish school. I, I, I attended uh, Rutgers and Tyler School of Art, and I just didn't like my college experience. You know, I really wanted to go to, like, Lincoln and Howard University, mm-hmm. but uh, it was recommended to me, you know, go to art school, but there was no black art school. So my experience in art school, I didn't enjoy it. So um, retrospectively, I'm like, I wish I had just went to business school. That's all I needed. Wow. You know what I mean? Like, like I can learn art on my own because basically most of the art I do, I learned on my own outside of fine art in high school. Most everything else I learned on my own. I, I don't even remember too much from college, you know, working at the studios. I, I learned from just working with professionals in the environment. So when I think about it now, even with my sons, I say, hey, man, just learn business, learn um, investing. So then you don't have to worry about people investing in your business. You can, you can take your money from your real estate, money from your, from your tax lien um, certificates, things like things. Those are things my son's have been studying and teaching me. And I said, man, I wish I knew this stuff back then. I'd have been, I'd have been flipping houses and then taking that money from the houses and putting it into my comic books. And the comic books would be my love. It would be, it will still be business, but it, it's like, I can love it more now because I have a revenue stream coming from over here that's going to go in here. So that's where my mind state has changed now in terms of uh, going after revenue stream building and um, building wealth uh, through investments and investment capital. So then we become our own investors instead of making a business plan for our comic book company and showing it to other people who don't understand what it is we're trying to do and the value, because a lot of times comics get looked down on when comics are like the first teachers in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. But when you, when you're your own investor, you don't have to, you don't have to convince anybody. We take our own money and we put it in there and then we build this institution. So I still think that the, the future and opportunities for us even to, to, combine our skills into the future is still there because we're all still alive. There's things that we learned in the past. We're all growing and we're all learning and it's not over, you know? So uh, that's the thing I would say to younger people is like, um, and that does go back to uh, uh, McDuffie's words is, is look at it as a business. So study business, study investment, money management, because that's the main thing that's going to keep this thing growing. And that's the thing that I wish I knew from day one, 
But a lot of our, our families and parents and all that stuff, they didn't know that. And a lot of our generation didn't know it. But now the information is out there and we can access it and, and turn our situation around and really build something for our people that is sus- that's sustaining for generations. Yeah. Wow. This has been uh, this has been an incredible conversation. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we've been talking to uh, two icons in uh, African-American comics. I don't know if the term is uh, speculative sequential, fictional media, whatever, whatever the fancy terms is. They use all, of that. <laughs> all of that. All of that. Daoud Anye Bwile, uh, Brother Man Comics, uh, Roosevelt Pitts, uh, Purge Comics. Um, ladies and, ge- ladies and gentlemen, um, it's been a terrific honor to talk to these people, uh, these two gentlemen. And, um, as we go out, uh, Daoud and Roosevelt, can you give out your contact information and where they can pick up your books? Uh, oh, yeah. Um, you want me to go first? Yep. Uh, okay, yeah. They can go to uh, brothermancomics.com. That's brothermancomics.com. On Instagram, is at brothermancomics with an X, C-O-M-I-X. Uh, our new book, Brotherman Revelation Graphic Novel, is also available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. And, um, you know, just type it in. You, you'll find it. So. <laughs> Just Google Brother Man Comics, and you, we're not difficult to find. Yep. And Roosevelt, your contact information, please. Uh, yes, you can find Purge on Kid Comics. That's www.kid-comics.com. Yep. You also can find me on, excuse me, on Twitter, Crimson Seed. It's actually at Crimson Seed One on Twitter, and I'm also on Instagram, and that's Roosevelt Pitt easy to remember on Instagram fantastic gentlemen it's been a pleasure to have you on the program thank you for having us yo family I know you enjoyed that conversation as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you this is Jonathan Soul speak with you now then head on over to JonathanSoul.com and pick up my ebook Malcolm Mars Malcolm like the prophet Mars like the planet it's a sci-fi ebook space opera. Talks about three brothers to take their families, pack them up in a homemade starship, kind of like an egg-shaped SUV, and they take them tomorrow to escape the violence, racism, the bullshit, basically. And they want to start a new life on a rare planet. It's a lot of love. It's a lot of high drama. It's a lot of high tech. And most of all, it's a lot of black pride in that novel. So check it out, Malcolm Mars. Support this broadcast. Go over there to uh, Amazon.com and you can pick it up. Or you can go to my website, JonathanSoul.com, and it'll take you over to Amazon. Jonathan Soul, J-O-H-N-A-T-H-A-N-S-O-U-L on Twitter. Subscribe to the show on iTunes. Uh, follow me on Tumblr and Twitter. Over there, in addition to the broadcast, you'll also get my other interests, photography, architecture, Gorgeous sisters you'll see over there. And anime. I got a really uh, serious interest in anime, particularly that Ghost in the Shell slash Cowboy Bebop slash, you know what I mean, uh, Black Lagoon. You know, just kind of a, a dysphoric, you know, high tech, a little bit of dark uh, kind of vibration. But you definitely enjoy the images over there. Listen, guys, I love you guys. Thank you for sharing your time with me. I hope all your dreams come true. 
find something that you enjoy as much as I enjoy doing this podcast. And you always guarantee some happiness in your life. Love you guys. Go for our dreams. <laughs> <laughs>